Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the rainbow family of living light. Murders, missing people, is it a cult or just an alternative lifestyle? Let's get right to it. The Rainbow Family of Living Light was largely inspired by the infamous 1969 Woodstock Festival anti-war pro-love movement. According to allthatsinteresting.com, the Rainbow Fam proudly claims that they don't have a leader. However, two men are largely credited for the group's foundation, Barry Plunker and Garrick Beck. They were both in their late 20s when they had a prophetic vision and were inspired to create the group after attending Vortex One Music Festival in August of 1970 in Portland, Oregon. Beck and Plunker thought all the small communes, nomadic groups, and stray hippies could merge together to create the largest, best-coordinated, non-political, non-denominational, non-organizational group of like-minded individuals on the planet, as described by one member, Plunker had previous experience living in a commune in San Francisco, and he used various Eastern and Western philosophies to attract members. Spirituality plays a huge role in the culture, which takes a little bit of everything, environmentalism, socialism, and Native American customs with Judaism, Buddhism, paganism, and other faiths to form an eclectic, inclusive belief system. Rainbow family members refer to mainstream society as Babylon. Beck and Plunker passed out leaflets and newsletters and eventually gained enough of a following to set up a small commune just outside of Eugene, Oregon. And thus, the Rainbow Family of Living Light, or the Rainbow Family for short, was born. And although there is no formalized membership or even any official leaders, Beck and Plunker wanted a way for the tribes people, as they called them, to come together and peace and love with music and dancing. The first official rainbow gathering was planned in Colorado in 1972. However, a court order was issued against the gathering. Even in its infancy, the rainbow family was met with resistance. But lo and behold, a local developer caught wind and offered up his property at nearby Strawberry Lake. It would be the first gathering of many. In fact, the Rainbow family will be gathering again this year, first week in July, as it has nearly every year since 1972. But it won't be without controversy. Some would say there's a dark side to the Rainbow family. There have been multiple missing persons, suspicious deaths, and murder cases linked to gatherings and the fam. Perhaps the most well-known murder case is that of Nancy Santamero and Vicky Durian, which occurred in 1980. According to AnetV.com, around June 25th, a college student found two female bodies lying on the ground 
right outside Droop Mountain Park in West Virginia. Both women had been shot at close range and their bodies had been dumped in a remote clearing. Neither girl had been sexually assaulted and police really couldn't determine motive and they didn't have much evidence to go on. But police begin to investigate and they learn that Nancy, Vicky, and a third young woman, Lisa Jondro, had hitchhiked to the Rainbow Family Gathering in West Virginia. There's actually a book, The Third Rainbow Girl, written by Emma Copley Einsberg, that details Liz Jondro's story way in depth. Liz Jondro had decided to leave just the day before the murder because she had an uneasy feeling, so she made a collect call to her brother in Vermont. He tells her that their dad is getting married that weekend, so she uses that as a good reason to change her plans and head up north. And thank God she did. Law enforcement revealed that they believed that locals had to be involved due to the remote location of the bodies. But despite investigative efforts, the case goes cold until 1982 when Jacob Beard, a local farmer, is arrested. According to Einsberg, Beard had read an anniversary piece about the unsolved case in a local newspaper, and he became consumed with thoughts of the murders. So he placed several calls to Vicki Durian's parents and reportedly apologized that Vicki had been killed where he lived and added that investigators in Pocahontas County are small town and not the brightest bulbs in the box. Beard urged Durian's father to get the FBI involved. In an interview with state police, Beard said he only called the family to express his sympathy, and he didn't know anything else. Einsberg stated that there had been very little evidence recovered at the scene, and no witness statements had been taken until 1983 and 84. So it comes as a complete shock when in 1992, a decade later, investigators construct what they believe to be a solid case. After, according to Sheriff Jerry Dale, in a statement given to the New York Times, information just started coming our way. On April 16, 1992, murder charges were brought against Jacob Beard and six other local men. Two of the men charged pointed at Beard as the shooter. One of these men at a pretrial hearing claimed a police officer had physically threatened him during questioning. And after the allegation of improper police procedure, all charges were voluntarily dropped by authorities. But in 1993, five of the men were indicted yet again. Charges were eventually dismissed against the other men, but prosecutors went forward with their case on Jacob Beard. But this case would take another crazy turn when while awaiting trial, Beard's lawyers learned that in 1984, convicted serial killer Joseph Paul Franklin, most well-known for shooting and paralyzing Larry Flint, you know, hustler publisher Larry Flint, said that he actually murdered Nancy and Vicky. However, he later denied involvement and would not make any further statements concerning the murders. Since Franklin recanted, a trial judge deemed his confession unreliable and blocked Beard's lawyers from presenting it as evidence. Beard was convicted by a jury on June 4, 1993, and sentenced to life without parole. But this case wasn't over yet. Beard's defense team petitioned the state and presented evidence of Franklin's original confession and brand spanking new eyewitness testimony that provided Beard an alibi on the day of the murders. 
The conviction was thrown out in January of 99 and a new trial set. And finally, on May 31st, 2000, Beard was acquitted. He was later awarded $2 million in a wrongful conviction lawsuit. Liz Jondro remembered her friends Nancy and Vicky as vibrant, fun-loving girls. I knew Vicky as Bright Star. I took to her warmth immediately, she says. I felt like we were friends within minutes, and she was just like that with so many people. Nancy was more serious, but really curious about wanting to try new things. The Rainbow Girls murder, as it's known, is to this date unsolved. According to the Charlie Project, on March 1st, 1995, Benjamin Richard Cannon went missing from his residence in the 1260 block of Weir Street in Omaha, Nebraska. He was 20 years old at the time of his disappearance, 6 foot 2, and about 180 pounds. He may have been suffering from some sort of mental illness, and he's classified as endangered missing. He's a white male with dark brown buzz cut hair with bangs. His ears are pierced, and his nickname is Ben. There are not many known details surrounding his disappearance. However, he was involved with the Rainbow family, and some suspect his involvement with the family possibly led to his disappearance. Cannon was not officially reported missing until May of 2004, nine years after anyone in his family laid eyes on him because police had refused to take a report. This is infuriating. I'm not even going to go there because I'm not sure we'd make it through this episode. Ben has never been heard from again. If you have any information about Ben's disappearance, please contact the Omaha Police Department. According to crononline.com, the 2011 gathering was held at the meadow southeast of Mount St. Helens in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. And just to paint a picture... There are large camps throughout the meadow, teepees, wood piles, tribesmen carrying hula hoops and juggling pins, women giving out free hugs. There's a yoga camp and makeshift kitchens. Drums and musical instruments abound. Adam Pearson reported on the gathering for Cron Online. On his way into the gathering, he observed a 40-year-old male with long hair and a beard, cosmically, his word not mine, stacking small pine cones in the road. He's seen the man again on his way out of the gathering, and he's prone on the ground, eyes wide open, while a woman sits cross-legged in front of him and slowly circles her right hand above his head. Hmm, okay. But this gathering wouldn't turn out to be all love and light and free hugs. According to Seattle Weekly, Marie Hansen was a married 54-year-old grandmother who worked for the El Dorado County District Attorney's Office for more than a decade when she was forced into early retirement by a botched back surgery. She attended the 2011 Rainbow Family Gathering. She had heard about it from her neighbor, Alan Peck, a.k.a. Mello, his given rainbow name, and his girlfriend, Kathy Ward. Kathy Ward said it's all Peck could talk about, and Marie just wanted to experience it. Peck arranged a rideshare, and on the morning of July 1st, they hit the road. Just Peck and Marie, along with Peck's dog bandit, and of course their rideshare driver. Ward was to catch up later on because she had a funeral to attend. Marie and Peck arrived and hiked up to the trail at the gathering site. A rainbow woman who calls herself Mama Kimmy says she noticed on the first day that Marie was hurting. 
She was ashen, her face looked stressed, and just the way she moved looked haggard. Mama Kimmy goes on to say she saw Marie again just a few days later and noticed that her condition had actually improved. Marie had traded some of her things for a doll and other trinkets to take home to her grandchildren. And notice I said traded because during these gatherings, money is not allowed. A barter and trade system is used in order to obtain food, clothing, trinkets, or whatever tribesmen may need. The weather had been colder than anyone had expected. It was warm in the afternoons, but overnight it dipped down into the low 40s. Another day or two goes by and Marie's bad back flares up. She became badly sunburned and also contracted a stomach virus. Peck reportedly brought food and water back to their tent and tried to care for her, but eventually sought the help of other rainbows with first aid training. Rob Savoy, who came to aid Marie, recalled that she didn't need much care and that the flu had been going around, stating, you basically shit and puked your brains out for 24 hours. Ward finally joined up with Peck late on July 5th. She arrived in a white Saturn sedan. Other members guided her up to the campsite where Marie and Peck were staying. When she got there, Peck was baking biscuits in one of the kitchens, and she was told that Marie was in the tent resting. The gathering was wrapping up, so the group moved their camp from the meadow down towards Saturn, which was parked on the side of the road. Supposedly, this is where Marie was last seen. According to Marie's family, as reported to Seattle Weekly, Peck told police the last time he saw her, she was stumbling down the street, barefoot in shorts and a tank top, and headed for the shitter. He saw her and went back to sleep and never saw her again, but he didn't think it was a big deal, just that she had went off somewhere, you know, whatever. All of Marie Hansen's possessions were left behind. Her wallet, purse, pain medication, and that doll and those trinkets she had gotten for her grandchildren. Later that afternoon, Peck returned to the meadow to search. He showed her driver's license to several people, but no one had reported seeing her. He then, on the evening of July 9th, called Marie Hansen's husband to let him know that he had lost his wife. Lost his wife? I'm sorry, y'all. I just can't. Scamania County Sheriff's Office was notified of Marie's disappearance, and at that time, they had already dealt with over two dozen missing persons cases at this gathering. It's a vast wilderness, and friends were losing friends. Parents were calling because their children had failed to check in as they said they would. It was a hot mess. And the thing is, this commonly happens around these gatherings. Multiple missing persons reports are filed, but in most cases, there's actually a happy ending. And it turns out the missing family member is just out of cell phone service, or they've hit the rainbow trail, or the hippie road as referred to by members. And what's the rainbow trail or hippie road, you ask? Well, to quote an article in the Seattle Weekly, it's the modern day equivalent to following the Grateful Dead on tour. Teenage dropouts and adventuresome 20-somethings scraped together enough cash to attend music festivals up and down the West Coast or hitchhike to various rainbow family potlucks in a happy-go-lucky odyssey. That usually ends when the weather turns cold. Not always the most responsible young adults, they sometimes lose touch with their families, who then contact authorities fearing the worst. And some thought Marie had just decided to follow the rainbow trail, although she had a whole ass husband, 
family, and deep ties to her community. So that wouldn't exactly make sense. And it definitely couldn't be confirmed. Members of Marie's family and also the Rainbow family start to grow more and more concerned. And while most of the family has packed it on up and moved on to their next destination, roughly a hundred tribesmen stay behind in search for Marie. A special Shanti Sina task force named Rainbow Team Marie is formed and some members actually had formal search and rescue training. Shanti Sino, which was coined by Gandhi and translates to Peace Army, is practiced by rainbows and basically means that if trouble arises, it's everyone's duty to come to the rescue. So a grid-style search is kicked off. This team actually rappelled down cliffs nearby where Marie had camped, but they find nothing. McCarty, as she is known, a rainbow family advocate, worked on behalf of Hansen's family, pressuring local police to pursue the case. She reports to Seattle Weekly that her efforts to find Hansen were mostly met with indifference from both the cops and the media. Time ticks on and the search continues. A young man who wished not to be identified came forward and claimed he had spent July 7th with Marie and Peck and camped out with them that night near Ward Saturn. Marie's family was absolutely shocked since there hadn't been any confirmed eyewitness sightings after July 6th, and Peck reported on July 9th that Marie had been missing for 72 hours. This young man goes on to say that Marie was quite sick, barely keeping food or water down. He reports lasting Marie at 1.30 a.m. on the morning of July 8th. Peck was questioned again, and he changed his story this time saying he'd actually seen Hansen on the road stumbling towards the trench latrine at around 6.30 a.m. on July 8th. Marie's family member states, one of the reasons we think Mello said I haven't seen her for 72 hours is he wanted police to think she'd been gone longer than she actually was. We have a culture that thinks they won't look for an adult unless they've been gone 72 hours. A detective on the case says it's a common misconception that missing person cases can't be immediately reported. They can, and that Peck could legitimately have lost track of time. I've never hemmed him up about whether he said 72 hours or whether he actually thought it was 72 hours, Robertson says. You're up there, you're high all the time, and you're not really tracking the days. What day it is or what the date is. When and where Peck last saw Marie wasn't the only inconsistency in his story. Peck would say that the pair camped next to this kitchen and then backtrack and name a different kitchen, and there were three gates, and he couldn't exactly tell them which gate they were parked by. So Marie's family decided the only way to know for sure was to pay to fly Peck out and have him point out exactly where Marie was the last time he saw her, and he does just that. Cadaver dogs are brought in and they pick up a scent. And on October 9th, Marie's remains are found in a patch of underbrush less than 15 yards away from the last campsite and within shouting distance from the road. According to TDN.com, an autopsy is performed, but due to the condition of the body, the Clark County Medical Examiner could not establish either the cause or manner of death. 
To add to the mystery, multiple sources say Ward ended up spending about three weeks in the psychiatric ward of Reno's renowned Regional Medical Center. And Peck's previous Rainbow Gathering participation was investigated. And it was revealed that Peck or Mello or whatever you want to call the dude really liked being naked at events and had previously roamed the festival's nude carrying a little funny sign that advertised his availability to females. And while law enforcement's official statement is that there isn't any information we've been able to gather that indicates there's any foul play involved, so many questions remain. What caused Marie's death? Why didn't Peck and Ward report Marie missing immediately? Why didn't they take Marie to a hospital if she was in such bad shape? Why didn't they search the woods near the car? Seattle Weekly reached the pair by phone around December 18, 2011, and Peck wasn't very happy about it. That's pretty fucked up to be bringing this shit up at Christmas time. It ain't cool. Don't call me at Christmas time and bring up somebody's death. It's not fucking cool. And then he hangs up. Ward is a little more talkative, but her story still doesn't make any sense. She says she never once laid eyes on Hanson from the time she arrived at the gathering on July 5th to the time she and Peck left the forest on July 10th. I never saw her. She got up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom and never came back. She further adds that she got separated from Peck several times, and at one point, he was left searching for both her and Marie. She ends the conversation with the fact that she still had a great time. I thought it was beautiful. It was a beautiful gathering. Lots of music, good people, the food was free. Everybody was so happy and friendly, and nice and warm. It was a great experience. A great experience? A grandmother is dead, but hey, the food was free. And that's it. Neither a cause or manner of death has ever been determined in Marie Hansen's case. In 2014, according to New York Daily News, the annual Rainbow Gathering was held in Utah's Unita National Forest. Everything seemed to be going well until police are dispatched about a disturbance at the Rainbow family site. Park rangers told deputies they heard someone screaming threats to kill another person. Police arrive and discover that a 32-year-old woman named Liliani Novak Garcia, better known by the Rainbow fam as Hitler. I already don't like her. Well, she, for unknown reasons, apparently started honking her car horn at around 1.30 a.m. And she continued to do this for half an hour. Three other attendees of the gathering approached Hitler and asked her to stop. She, of course, refused. So one man, 45-year-old Neil Sparling, opened the hood of the car and attempted to disconnect the fuses in order to disable the horn. Well, that really pisses Hitler off. And according to charging documents obtained by DesertNews.com, she responded by striking one person with a tire iron. She then stabbed Mr. Sparling in the head and shoulder with a knife. Starling was transported to the hospital in serious condition, briefly hospitalized, but thankfully made a recovery. The person struck with a tire iron refused to cooperate with authorities, and the third person, who somehow managed to get out of the exchange unharmed, also declined to cooperate with the investigation. Novak Garcia slash Hitler was charged on one count of aggravated assault. 
Hitler was given the maximum prison sentence five years, but for some unknown reason, Judge Roger Griffin suspended it and only ordered Novak Garcia to serve 300 days in jail. In a letter written to the judge and obtained by DesertNews.com, Hitler stated, I have asked myself over and over again how someone like me, who stands for goodness and is so kind-hearted in giving, could possibly hurt a fellow human being so morosely. And she added, she's more than deeply remorseful for her actions. Okay, your nickname is Hitler, so how about you spare us all the peace, love, and goodness bullshit? 2015 was a particularly violent year for the Rainbow family. The family gathering was held in Apalachicola National Forest in Florida. At around 2.30 a.m. on March 5th, deputies were dispatched to a campsite in the forest after reports of a shooting, and when they arrived, they found two men shot and another man injured. Jacob Smiley Cardwell succumbed to his injuries, two gunshot wounds. Wesley Dice Jones was left a quadriplegic after being shot three times. And the shooter, Clark Mayers, suffered stab wounds that required hospitalization. Law enforcement officials begin investigating and two completely different accounts of what happened emerge. According to the Gainesville Sun, the shooter Clark Mayers claimed he was in fear for his life and that's why he fired the gun, killing one and severely wounding another. According to Mayers, his trailer was parked to avoid a camp, which was frequented by alcoholics and the more rowdy crowd. He was asleep when he awoke to a lover's spat outside his trailer about midnight. So he got dressed and went outside with his gun and asked the lovers to take it elsewhere. He claimed once outside, he smelled the toxic smoke of a tire burning and walked over to the site to offer trash bags to haul it off. Mayers claimed that the previous year he had been threatened over a tire fire, but that's not why he brought his gun with him. No, no, he brought the gun because he was in an area with black bears, alligators, and could be confronted with an angry dog. I guess anything's possible. He also had a video camera with him, you know, to go offer the trash bags because that's believable. And as he began videotaping, Jones, who he had recognized from the previous year, commenced to punching him in the jaw then threw the camera into the fire and picked up a shovel. He further says that Jones and others moved towards him and began backing him up in the direction of his trailer. When the men started to advance towards me, I drew my gun and pointed it at Jones, Mayor stated. I retreated all the way to where my back was against my trailer. I commanded them to back off. I yelled at them approximately 12 times to stop. I was cornered. I had nowhere else to go. Mayers first shot Jones and then fired at Cardwell after he charged him with a machete. Mayers got into his truck to call 911 but couldn't get a signal. He was then drugged from his truck and attacked by rainbows. Yeah, I just said he was attacked by rainbows. He suffered 29 stab wounds and lacerations, broken ribs and elbow, and second-degree burns from the exhaust pipe on his truck after he tried to roll under it. Mayers had to be airlifted due to his injuries and then spent two weeks at Tallahassee Memorial Hospital recovering. But Jones told a different story, stating that he and some friends were gathered around a tire fire they had set. When Mayers approached and started yelling, 
We told him to mind his own business and get away, Jones testified. He stated Mayors came back 10 minutes later with a camera and began videotaping. Everybody was asking him not to videotape us. I grabbed the camera from him and threw it in the fire, Jones said. The incident happened quickly and the last thing Jones can remember, according to his testimony, is Cardwell yelling, no guns in the church, before he too was shot by Mayors. Mayors was charged with attempted first-degree murder and second-degree murder. Mayors filed a stand-your-ground motion. In March of 2018, according to NewsHerald.com, Circuit Judge Terry Lewis found that Richard Smith, Mayors' attorney, had not met the burden of proof standard that Mayors had been justified in the use of his deadly force against either man. Judge Lewis went a step further and stated that if the amended statute were to apply retroactively, however, the state had not proved the shootings were not the result of the justifiable use of deadly force by mayors. And what exactly are we talking about? In 2017, the Florida legislature enacted changes to the Stand Your Ground law, which required prosecutors to prove a defendant by clear and convincing evidence did not act justifiably in self-defense. You see, previously defense attorneys had the burden of proving the greater weight of the evidence that the defendant was justified and the use of deadly force, according to the newsherald.com. So mayor's attorneys took it to the appeals court and they won. And on August 11th, 2020, charges against mayors were dropped and he was a free man. In the summer of 2018, according to the newsenterprise.com, Joseph Capstraw and Amber Robinson, both from Florida, met at a Rainbow Family of Light gathering in the Chattahoochee National Forest in Georgia. According to an article on oxygen.com, the pair seemed to hit it off, and after the gathering, they hitchhiked north up Interstate 65 through Tennessee and into Kentucky, where they were picked up by a man from Elizabethtown. He invited them to spend the night at his home, according to John Thomas of the Elizabethtown Police Department, out of the kindness of his heart. This man never imagined his home would become the scene of a horrendous crime. He leaves his home and was still out around 2 a.m. on July 7, 2018, when a call comes into police by a neighbor about a suspicious person in the area according to a criminal complaint obtained by Oxygen.com. Police respond and find Capstraw outside the house, bloody and requesting to be taken to a hospital. He said, I killed her. And then he led them into the house. What Officer Thomas sees when he goes inside that house still troubles him. The attack was so brutal. Her face was totally destroyed. He said, I've never seen anything like it in 10 years of law enforcement. Robinson had been beaten severely in the face and had obvious strangulation marks around her neck. The attack on Robinson was so brutal that she wasn't immediately identifiable and it took officials days to ID her. And while Joseph Capstraw immediately admitted to the attack, there's not really much else he claimed he knew about what had happened. He just said he and Amber had gotten into a verbal altercation and he blacked out. When he came to, he found her dead and multiple injuries on his own hands, the complaint obtained by Oxygen states. Capstraw is immediately arrested and charged with murder. And while he claims he has no memory, later on in interviews with police, he repeated that he had beat Amber to death, 
according to the Forsyth County News. Which is it? You blacking out or you remember beating her? Because it can't be both. Amber Robinson's grandfather speaks out about his granddaughter. She was her own girl. She was unique from the beginning, he said. Robinson planned to become a marine biologist, and she enjoyed spending time at the beach. Her grandfather read the last entry of a journal that belonged to Amber. I'm just a believer that things will get better, she wrote. Amber Robinson was only 18 years old when her life was tragically ripped from her. On February 21, 2020, Joseph Capstraw is found guilty of the murder of Amber Robinson and subsequently sentenced to 50 years in prison, but he will be eligible for parole, according to the DOC website, in 2038. Let's hope the parole board recognizes the seriousness and brutal nature of this crime and keeps his ass locked up. And these aren't all the crimes. Agencies all over the U.S. and abroad report high crime activity whenever the Rainbow family comes into town. There are families who claim their missing loved ones ran off with the family never to be seen again. Heavy usage of drugs is reported at these gatherings and amongst members, especially psychedelic drugs. The Rainbow family has an official, unofficial website at welcomehome.org. When you go to said website, you're immediately greeted with, Welcome home. And, when the earth is ravaged and the animals are dying, a new tribe of people shall come into the earth from many colors, classes, creeds, and who by their actions and deeds shall make the earth green again. They will be known as the warriors of the rainbow. This is an excerpt taken from an old Native American prophecy. You can find everything from historical information to rainbow music, calendars, rainbow clans, which there's everything from international rainbow websites to connect with clans overseas to different clan restaurants here in the States. There's a section entitled Focalizers Info, which states that while there are no leaders in the Rainbow family, that there are folks that help focus on what individuals need to do, and that Rainbow is all about empowering the individuals within a group of folks to make a difference. Focalizers aren't in charge, and people only listen to them out of respect. And just because someone may have a mailing list or do a newsletter, doesn't mean they are part of the rainbow bureaucracy and you can turn over your responsibilities as a human being to them. So, leaders but not leaders? The rainbow family has been met with controversy since the very beginning. Some would even go so far as to call it a cult. What exactly is a cult by its very definition? According to Tennessee State University, there are thousands of cults in America, some harmless and some that can be very dangerous. A cult is a group or movement held together by a shared commitment to a charismatic leader or ideology. It has a belief system that has the answers to all of life's questions and offers a special solution to be gained only by following the leader's rules. It requires a high level of commitment from at least some of the members. Is the Rainbow Family a cult? Is it just an alternative lifestyle group? Are these crimes just likely to happen when you get that many people in one place 
Or is there something deeper and darker? I don't know, guys, but I'd love to hear what you think. Let me know either on my Facebook, at least of these, or on my Instagram, at least underscore of these. I really want to hear y'all's opinion on this one. A brand spanking new episode is headed right your way next Thursday. And I can't wait to share this story with y'all. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And thank you guys so much for the ratings on Apple Podcast. I really do enjoy hearing your feedback and I appreciate it more than you know. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. And hey, don't join a cult. Until next time, be good to each other.